Can I also acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Tori Shepherd. Welcome to the Adelaide Festival of Ideas. I'm going to introduce you to our speakers in just a second, but we'll do housekeeping first in the unlikely event of an emergency. Head to the exit <laughs> towards the back and there's one to your left as well. Uh, because we're under 50% capacity, you can demask if you would like. We're going to have questions at the end of the session, so as we go through, just tuck them away. Don't leave us hanging when we go to throw to the audience. We'll have a microphone set up over here. And before we start today, we're, I hope you know, we're going to be talking about voluntary assisted dying and euthanasia. So some of this may contain content that you find distressing. If you feel uncomfortable at any time, please make your way back out to the foyer where there are staff there who can assist you. Let's begin. It's an interesting moment here in South Australia, but it's also interesting across the country, really. I mean, there's been sort of almost like a domino effect happening with voluntary assisted dying legislation. So talking to us today, we've got Kaya Ma, who's the leader of the opposition in the Legislative Council, Shadow Attorney General, Shadow Minister for Industrial. It just goes on and on. There's a whole lot of other stuff. But what you really need to know is that Kaya was hugely instrumental in, in the legislation, which was the seven, 18th? 17th. 17th. Um, attempt to get through the South Australian Parliament. Sam Lara is next one down. So she's been directing for the past 10 years. Now there is a whole list here as well of awards won and nominations and she's working on an exciting new project right now which you might talk about a little bit later. Maybe. And also your other film you can talk us to about a little bit later which is now out on iView as I understand it. Um, Susan Close. Oh, I've lost you Susan. Anyway, Labor MP Susan Close, who was also <laughs> instrumental in the voluntary assisted dying legislation, working very closely with Kaya Ma, um, and probably working some, some magic on some of the people that you needed to get over the line throughout the whole process. And down the end is Helen Walker. Now, Helen has a cold, just in case there's an errant sneeze, but she's been tested and it's not COVID. <laughs> so, Helen's worked all over the place. At the moment, she's the nurse unit manager of Laura Hospice at Flinders Medical Centre. And I think one of the things we'll really be interested in talking to you about is palliative care and how that intersects with voluntary assisted dying legislation. So look, I thought what we'd do, just in case any of you are unfamiliar with any of these people, is we might just go down the line. And if you could just quickly tell us, um, I, I do hate the word journey, <laughs> but you know, where you come to the issue from. Yeah, I'm, uh, as Tori introduced me, Kaim Ma, the uh, leader of the Labor Party in the Upper House of State Parliament. Um, I generally sit on the left of social issues. You know, my, my predisposition when it's an issue of social conscience is to vote in favour of that, that sort of libertarian view. On voluntary assisted dying, it's, it's always something I'd supported, that right of someone to choose if they so wish to and they're in pain at the end of their life uh, to choose a way to die with dignity. Um, it was uh, three and a half years ago when my mum was at the end of her battle with pancreatic cancer uh, that she decided she'd have it, had enough and wanted to you know, end all the pain but wasn't allowed to do it. So it was a couple of weeks of essentially uh, you know, uh, uh, starving herself and not taking water, not taking medication. And I, I remember the exact moment when my own children said goodbye to their grandmother for the last time, thinking being a supporter is no longer enough. And it was at that, that moment that I knew that I, yeah, I could do more and, uh, and I felt I had to do more. 
and uh, soon after the last state election, you know, started looking at the, the way that was the best path for voluntary assisted dying to happen in South Australia. So you know, we set up a select committee and then eventually had legislation that mirrored Victoria's. So that, that's sort of my journey on uh, going from you know, being a supporter to you know, being a pretty fierce advocate and, uh, and moving bills in Parliament. Thanks, Kaim. And I think it was really um, important and interesting how many personal stories were told during those debates as well in Parliament. Sam, tell us about your grandma. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm Sam Lara. I'm a filmmaker. And before 2019, I knew nothing about assisted dying. Um, it was then that my grandma came to me, and, and it was just before her 90th birthday. And she said she'd lived a full life um, and was ready to die, but it's not legal for elderly people to end their lives here in Australia. So she travelled to Switzerland, where she passed away at the end of 2019 with my mum and I there by her side. As I'm a filmmaker, she um, gave me the mammoth task of documenting her journey, and we made a two-part series for the ABC called Laura's Choice, which some of you may have seen. I'm seeing some nodding. Um, you can stream it on iView if you haven't. Um, I was really, really conflicted by my grandma's decision and was really hesitant to be seen as an assisted dying advocate. I was still coming to terms with how I felt about the experience and my own personal journey, let alone looking at the bigger picture and all of the complexities that we'll get into today. But after the broadcast, I heard from so many people and, and really listened to their stories and had also moved through my own grief. And so now I'm, I sort of was like flung begrudgingly into the camp of people who support assisted dying. And I'm now really um, comfortable to say I, I do support assisted dying legislation. Um, I do think it's important to note that my grandma was not terminally ill. She was just old. And while she saw old age as a terminal illness, she wasn't eligible for any of the legislation that's passed in some states. So that really puts her on the pointy end of this debate, and I guess me by extension. Um, but the elderly are a large percentage of the population who are fighting for the right to die. Um, and so while it is very controversial, I think it's an incredibly important part of the conversation and something that I hope we'll have time for today. I hope we will too. We've got a lot to get through, but we will prioritise that. <laughs> Susan, where are you coming at this from? So I don't have a personal experience. I've lost all four of my grandparents, but um, it was fortunate that they had reasonably easy, in fact, in a couple of cases, really um, delightfully easy partings. Uh, I, of course, am good friends with Kayam for my sins, and. Uh, it was moved by his experience when it happened. Uh, but it was really when Kaim asked me to take on this legislation in the lower house that I realised, a bit, bit as Kaim described, that I needed to go from being generally supportive and you know, generally progressive on all of those kinds of issues to needing to understand it as a legislator. And uh, I had to do a, a, a lot of work to understand what all of the clauses meant and why they were there. I needed to understand people's expectations in the community and that was an incredibly moving experience to hear so many stories across the country. And I also needed to understand it from a sort of parliamentary tactics perspective of what did we need to do to get this thing through. Uh, and it was 
a remarkable privilege. I, I think that word's overused in public life, or it's such a privilege, and, and you know, public life is a privilege, but it sounds a bit trite. Uh, but in this case it was because I was allowed to be part of history uh, thanks to Kyan and thanks to the campaigners across this state. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I played that little role. And Helen, what's it been like watching this happen within the palliative care industry? Yes, thanks, Tori. And um, I have to say that I've come at this from a slightly different perspective. I'm also Deputy Chair of Palliative Care Australia, which is um, the national peak for palliative care. And uh, Palliative Care Australia is agnostic on voluntary assisted dying. And we've been challenged very much as an organisation to try and understand what the nexus is between the two. And I think over time we've come to that. Um, following an international study tour a couple of years ago to America and um, Canada, where we studied in detail, particularly the medical assistance in dying program in Canada, we, we've learned a great deal and we were able to come, a, um, come to the point of having a consensus statement and a position statement on voluntary assisted dying uh, with all the, uh, our key partners, the AMA, PCNA, the, all the major groups around um, palliative care in Australia. So um, we are very happy to say that whilst voluntary assisted dying is not a part of palliative care practice, the law of the land is that there is voluntary assisted dying coming into, into legislation and palliative care needs to live with that and need to work with it and they are not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. The best palliative care we can have will be of support to everybody if they choose voluntary assisted dying or not. Very well put, thank you. And I think we'll dig into that a little bit more later sure. as well, the intersection of the two. But um, Kaim, if you don't mind, can you, I mean, we based our legislation on Victoria, there's, I think Queensland's about to debate WA, it's, it's happening all around the country. But can you tell us what it's gonna be like in South Australia once this legislation comes into, like what does a person do? What's the process for them? Yeah, it's, it's very, it is uh, almost identical to Victoria's legislation and it's uh, the sort of model that's being, uh, uh, rolled out across Australia, I think it's known, uh, yeah, the Australian model of voluntary assisted dying. Uh, Tasmania has passed legislation earlier this year and WA scheme uh, came into effect at the start of this financial year, so only um, uh, a few weeks ago. And, and what it is, is, is uh, it's pretty consistent in all the states that have introduced voluntary assisted dying legislation. Uh, to access it, a person's uh, got to be an adult, yeah, at least resident in that state and usually for 12 months uh, across states in, in South Australia, uh, have been diagnosed and had that diagnosis confirmed by a second doctor with a terminal illness that's expected to cause death within six months or up to 12 months for a neurodegenerative uh, condition and be suffering in, a person, uh, suffering in a way that that person doesn't consider tolerable. So they're the sort of prerequisites to... Uh, uh, access voluntary assisted dying in South Australia as it is in the other states that have passed. And then there's a pretty complicated process that includes, I think it's uh, 72 safeguards and hurdles that uh, a person has to go through, including making an initial request, uh, getting a coordinating doctor who uh, has, uh, gives the diagnosis, a second doctor, uh, a final request, and each step of the way, um, having capacity assessed and voluntary voluntariness assessed. Uh, so it, it's, it's not an easy thing to go through. And I think 
in the experience from a couple of years of Operation Victoria, uh, almost overwhelmingly, the criticism hasn't been that it's, it's too easy or too many people are uh, accessing voluntary assisted dying. It's in fact the opposite, that you know, it, it is a, a difficult thing to access. And, uh, and for such an important decision, I, I think yeah, we, we represent the community and, and what, what uh, people expect. And I think there is an expectation with such an important decision that it, it, it's not yeah, a particularly easy thing to, uh, to access, and, and that's how it is in South Australia. Once you get the approval, then are you given a box? Is that what? Do, how does how does that actual practically carry out? Yeah, once you give an approval, uh, the and, and uh, it will work very similar to Victoria, where the statewide pharmacy service comes out and visits you with this locked box with a substance in the box, uh, and again as a final check to make sure you still want the uh, the substance, and then uh, you at some time when you choose. Uh, administer the substance yourself. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people in Victoria uh, have administered the substance with loved ones around uh, in their own home or their nursing home. Um, uh, I think Victoria reflects what we see overseas, and about one third of people who uh, are, are assessed as being eligible for the scheme don't end up taking the substance. But the evidence shows that for a lot of people, the the fact that they have been assessed as eligible and, and have the substance gives such relief, you know, such knowledge that there is some degree of control, that that is almost, uh, you know, uh, uh, palliates some of the condition uh, as well. So, yeah, it is, you know, about a third don't end up taking the substance. Yeah, the box is just there as a, as yep. a comfort to them. It's so interesting. Sam, that's, it's a lot of rigmarole, and you already said that your grandmother wouldn't be eligible under any of the legislation anyway. Do you think that's too much rigmarole to go through? Um, I mean, are we getting into the slippery slope? We are. It sounds a like bit, we are. Yeah. I, I think that the checks and balances and the slippery slope stuff is um, something for the experts in legislation to discuss. For me, it's very diplomatic. Of <laughs> I, I have. Um, I think it can be used as a really lazy argument by people who don't understand the process. It's so difficult to access those laws that have been put through. Um, that's why my grandma had to go to Switzerland. And that in itself was incredibly painful. Um, the, the actual experience of watching someone die is, it was really quite beautiful, but going to Switzerland to do it was not. There was nothing about going to Switzerland that was nice or enjoyable. You know, we weren't going to chocolate factories and seeing mountains. It was a 30 hour journey for, in cattle class, as my grandma calls it. Um, you know, she saved up her pension, so she, she wasn't well off by any means. Um, it was a really hard journey, and um, she would have loved to have been able to to die in her little flat in northern New South Wales with my grandma, with my mum and I there. Um, yeah, I guess the the only thing I have to say about the the checks and balances and the the whole like fear of a, a slippery slope with the legislation is that there already is. You you could say there already is. That's already happening on the other side. There, there already are people dying in really horrific ways and that they're, they're dying painfully, they're ending their lives by themselves because they, they aren't able to access legislation. And the idea that um, a family could use legislation to convince the elderly in their life to, 
to kill themselves is completely absurd to me. It's usually the families who are resistant to this, not the people who are wanting to end their life. And if they're going to do that, they're going to be doing that anyway without this legislation. And what, what legislation does is it actually protects people. Um, so in that sense, having checks and balances is really great because it means that it's protecting the vulnerable from being harmed by this legislation. But it, it, it should be available to a wider group of people. Very well done. <laughs> both my grandmothers um, were in a lot of pain when they died, and with both of them it was a doctor who said, we can up the morphine, but it's risky. And I just often think as well, what about the doctors making those decisions and the lack of protection there? Yeah. When it's, you know, in those cases, the right thing to do. Susan. As you went through the process of negotiating and amendments and all these different things, was there anything there that, that changed your mind? I thought one of the more interesting debates as well was about whether um, it should be accessible to people in aged care homes. Well, the, the uh, crux of the debate in the House of Assembly became uh, one of what to do about Catholic health, basically. Not just Catholic health, there are other uh, religious institutions that run healthcare, but Catholic health is, is a significant part of our healthcare system. And there's a, a, a view taken by uh, the Catholic Church, not interestingly by a lot of Catholics, but, but by the Church, that there is something fundamentally wrong about voluntary assisted dying. So it's a black or white, this is something that is wrong, it's not able to be managed or have safeguards, it is a, a binary right or wrong. And uh, in Victoria, the legislation didn't deal with that, it allowed full right for any individual involved in the process to not be involved, to have a conscientious objection, but was silent on whether an institution was able to opt out. And uh, so therefore the legislation that we received, uh, because we tried so hard to, to model this sort of Australian way of dying, uh, was also silent. And it became clear that there were two issues, uh, one political and one real. Uh, the political issue was that there were a number of people in the lower house who were uncomfortable with not acknowledging that an institution like uh, a Catholic hospital ought to be able to say no for the people within it. Uh, and that's a political issue. But the real issue was that we were getting evidence in Victoria that silence wasn't helping the people who were dying. And the legislation is for them. It's to, as you've said so, so beautifully, it is to protect them and to give them power. And what was happening in Victoria in a couple of instances in particular that were very movingly uh, described by Andrew Denton on his brilliant podcast uh, meant that the institution effectively exercised an objection uh, which was never tested in court about whether they were able to do that or not. They effectively made it very hard for one gentleman in particular who'd been living in aged care for some time, who then, while in aged care, contracted um, the uh, bowel cancer, uh, metastatic bowel cancer, which as I understand it is very, very painful. And he'd made the decision that he wanted to die. He'd gone through the process. I suspect quietly that people were visiting, that maybe there wasn't a lot of information about why they were visiting. In any case, uh, he was given the right, but he asked the institution if he would be allowed to take it. Uh, not, not if he would be allowed, he actually told them that he was going to do it because he didn't want the staff to come in and find a dead body. So he wanted to explain and he wanted to say goodbye to the people around him. 
uh, who he'd lived with for a number of years, and they took that to their ethics committee in nine days, which is a very long time when you're at that stage. Nine days later, the ethics committee said, no, you can't do that here and you'll have to be transferred to a public institution and we don't want you to tell anyone why you're leaving. So he uh, left, he didn't say goodbye to the other residents that he'd spent a number of years with and uh, within a few hours of arriving in the public institution he was able to take that, that substance and die. Um, his family say that it, he felt very welcome when he arrived, he felt very cared for and, and welcome, but that's not a process that is ideal. Uh, that doesn't, it doesn't respect his legal right to, to die and it didn't make it very easy. So we felt that there was a need to uh, acknowledge the reality of the position that some institutions take uh, that run health services and aged care services and we needed to uh, create a pathway that meant that it was clear for everybody what would happen. So that was the nature of the substantial uh, amendments that were made. It, there was a couple of others, but that was the, 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 the guts of it. And we were able to reach a, an agreement that um, we would differentiate between a hospital and a hospice, so short-term stay, and where someone lived, where it was their permanent place of residence, such as aged, aged care, residential care, and so on. So we were able to do that in a way that meant that the legislation was able to go through and I think in fact is an improvement on the Victorian model because it recognises the reality of our healthcare system and has created pathways that everyone can know about in advance. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it was difficult because obviously a lot of advocates were saying don't touch it, don't touch it, stick as it is and we understand, I, you know, Kaim and I talked a lot about it and we talked with many of the advocates who sat through all of the legislation uh, and in the end, I think there was broad agreement that what, where we landed was the right place, but it was not an easy, easy process to go through. That's again that sense of responsibility that Kaim and I felt that we were representing so many people. Mm. I come back to that idea of the responsibility in a little bit, but Helen, is it a fair observation that there are certain groups who only seem to push for gold standard palliative care when they're arguing against euthanasia? Gosh, I would hope not. I think that, um, I think let's all understand that dying is not a medical condition, it's a human condition. Mm. And palliative care seeks to provide um, people with the capacity to live their best lives for as long as that is. So um, I would hope that it's just not linked to euthanasia. I mean, for someone like me who's been advocating strongly for two decades or more for increased, increases in palliative care and have thought very seriously and carefully about it, I would hope to see that uh, it's not linked. I think what I would just like to add to the debate is, um, uh, and I support the legislation totally, um, and that's me, I've come a long way to be able to say that. Uh, but what I'd like to talk about is this notion of suffering and dignity and pain, because actually most people, um, Certainly in the work that I do, um, if, if people can access good palliative care, a lot of that is dealt with. Um, notions of pain, that's the easiest of suffering that we can deal with, given the right 
capacity and right opportunity. It's the existential suffering that I think is really important to understand. And as we as practitioners are looking at the legislation and thinking about the next steps, because it's one thing to have the legislation, it's the next thing to make it happen, is we're trying to understand what are the views of um, our colleagues out there about this? How will we manage voluntary assisted dying in our, health, in our hospitals and health services? And we have to take all of those things into account. But to um, just to talk about a lack of dignity, everything that we do every day in our work in hospices is about dignity. It's making sure that everybody can access that, which is the most important thing. Um, so, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, Tori, but I think it's a, it, it is a complex and it is a difficult issue and a fabulous palliative care physician I met in Canada who, in fact, has become a made provider. He actually said to me, this is hard, Helen, but it needs to be hard. These, these, are, these are important and complex decisions. It's just not about, oh, today I'm going to end my life. I mean, these things come by degree. They're not simple, easy decisions. And uh, most people actually want to live. Uh, but when it comes time to die, um, I agree that there needs to be a range of choices. But I just want to see gold standard palliative care available to everybody so that that issue of pain can be dealt with and anything else that comes along. How far away are we from that, Helen? Oh, I think we've got a long way to go. Um, PCA did a national survey um, this year just before our large campaign, which is um, palliative care is more than you think. Um, and 40% of people don't think they're in a capacity to ask for referral to palliative care when they receive a terminal diagnosis. You know, that's really miserable. Um, our own palliative care services in South Australia are, are really stretched, really, really stretched. Um, you know, we have people on wait lists all the time to get into hospice, but we have our staff out in the general hospitals and in the community trying to improve the quality of, of dying that, that um, is occurring. Um, but we are really stretched. So, you know, I'm really hoping with this legislation that the government will very strongly support uh, a rapid increase in um, funding to palliative care. Kyam, do you think that's going to be on the cards? Yeah, we've, we've seen in every other state in Victoria and WA, when it was proposed in Queensland and in Tasmania, um, along with voluntary assisted dying legislation, there has been an increase in palliative uh, care funding. And, and I, I suspect it's because governments are conscious of the, uh, of the criticism that you know, people will opt for voluntary assisted dying because there's not suitable palliative care. Yeah, it's one of the things that's put up by opponents of voluntary assisted dying. And I think almost governments react to that by increasing and quite significantly funding for palliative care. And I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't see the same that we've seen in other states around Australia in that. So would it be a good situation for you in a sense if that palliative care did get up to that universal gold, gold standard and the demand for euthanasia would then, do you think it would drop? No, I, I, I don't. I, I, and I, I think the evidence generally is around the world there's, that one doesn't follow the other. Mm. You know, someone doesn't choose voluntary assisted dying because there's uh, not good enough palliative care. I think those few people who are at the end of their life who choose voluntary assisted dying do so 
because palliative care, even at its very best, is just not enough. And if I can just make some comment there. I mean, what we know about voluntary assisted dying, and certainly what I picked up in Canada as well, is it's a lot about autonomy, which I guess, you know. It's a lot about having choice and, and having some control. And, and I remember hearing in Alberta this story of um, an Indigenous woman who had been um, a stolen generation again, just like our own First Nations people. And she had requested, um, made, even though her symptoms were quite well controlled, but she'd been sexually abused, she'd then gone into a marriage, as, as a child she'd then gone into a marriage, had been a victim of domestic violence, and then she got cancer. And she said, for the first time in my life, I'm gonna take control of what is happening to me. And so that's a really, that, that really stuck with me, that story. And I think that often it's actually not about pain, it's about wanting to take charge and own your own circumstance. And that's why a lot of people get the medication and then choose not to take it. And I think, um, Kaim, you mentioned that that is a, a palliative impact on its own, and it, and it most surely is. And um, so these are very complex issues, um, but they go hand in hand. And, and just on, and I think Sam mentioned it before, um, just because voluntary assisted dying isn't legally available by legislation, it doesn't mean people aren't taking matters into their own hands. We had a, a joint house select committee that led up to the bill being introduced, and we had both uh, the SA coroner and the police uh, give evidence that about 10% of uh, suicides in South Australia are old people with a terminal illness. And the impact that has on you know, first responders, police and ambulance officers, on the family that you know, find someone who's um, you know, you know, taken matters into their own hands uh, is, is pretty huge. So yeah, it, regardless of the standard of palliative care, um, people are going to take matters in their own hands in any event. Yeah, that's a really good point. Sam, how were your grandmother's emotions in cattle class or when she'd booked the ticket? Um, did she have that feeling of autonomy as she went through the process? Yeah, I mean, she was buoyant. It was, it was mad. Um, she was in such high spirits the whole time. And, I mean, that's... It's not to say that she wasn't ready. Like, when, when we got to Switzerland, there was... We had a few days... Um, as we were going through, um, you know, she had to say that she wanted to do it many, many times and there was meetings with doctors and things. So we had time in Switzerland beforehand and we were saying, do you want to go see the mountains? Do you want... She loved chocolate. That's one of the things that will stick with me forever is how much my grandma loved chocolate. We're like, let's go, you know, try, like sample all of the Swiss chocolate. And, and she just eventually grabbed me and said, Sam, if I was still interested in seeing things and doing things, I wouldn't be here. I've had enough. I've got no interest in doing anything anymore. That's why we're here. So our last days were really spent um, sitting in her hotel room. We really hardly left. We just hung out. We played Monopoly the day before, which is a bold choice because that game destroys families. <laughs> um, and we, you know, just sort of told each other stories and... Um, and just spent time together and we got to say and do all of the things that we wanted to say to her and um, and she was making jokes right up until the end and um, yeah she was in she was in really high spirits and 
she did say that if she had the drugs in her cupboard at home that she would have lived longer, but she was worried about not being medically fit to fly, so she, she had to end her life sooner than she would have wished. So in a sense, if we had um, a law that she would have been eligible for, my grandma would still be alive. Oh, wow. That's complicated and very complicated. <laughs> was your whole family on board? Uh, her whole family is my mum and I. So okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not a big group to wrangle yeah. then. No. no. <laughs> Logistically simple. <laughs> uh, Susan, I want you to get back to this idea of responsibility, that everybody in every step in this process would feel a great deal of responsibility. But was there anything when you were going through um, the rules um, and exemptions and, you know, you hear these anecdotes, is there anything that would still give you pause? Is there any outcomes that you would be worried about? I guess I was just thinking, with things like this, there's always that one case where the system didn't work for that, one, you know, that guy too. being left in limbo for, for nine days and so on. Uh, oh, look, inevitably, there will be people who... We will hear stories that they weren't able to have access uh, that sound heart-wrenching. Uh, I don't think, given the evidence that we've seen already in Victoria, that we'll see any stories where someone has taken that step and that there's later a conclusion that that shouldn't have happened. Uh, the safeguards are so strong, uh, the process is so tight, and the evidence thus far uh, with the review board that really looks for it has not seen that there's been anything that's been sort of let through that makes it um, easy for coercion to take place. The sort of things that people naturally fear when coming fresh to this question of, of voluntary assisted dying. Uh, so yes, there will be, I am sure, cases of people who would have liked to have been able to do this and won't be able to. Um, the, the, a friend of mine has Parkinson's and I didn't realise until she explained it to me very recently that she is likely to get dementia. I hadn't managed to know that about Parkinson's. And therefore, it depends on whether there are two specialists who say that she's within 12 months of dying of Parkinson's and she is still able to express a clear intention that she would like to have access. So she doesn't know if this will affect her. So uh, there will be very difficult circumstances like that. But I don't, at this stage, feel any lingering concern. I feel that this was, uh, it is a tight piece of legislation. I think we probably should be careful when we're dealing with people's lives and with doctors' um, you know, responsibilities. It's, it's difficult to be a practitioner in these circumstances and you need to make sure that you're giving them a pathway that, that protects them. And uh, I feel that it's a good piece of legislation, I really do. And having um, heard so many people's stories, I think it's answering a very deep need. Mm. Yeah, 2am waking frights, I hope. Yes, Helen. Sorry, I've just, um, my colleague, Dr. Allcroft, and I are touring um, around the um, Flinders Medical Centre at the moment, actually uh, presenting on the legislation. And one of the things that junior doctors in particular are really comforted by is that they're not the ones that are going to be making these decisions. So these are uh, doctors, both the first and second assessors, and I applaud the legislation for this, um, are uh, consultants who have been uh, five years post their um, graduation as a consultant. So, you know, that is very important because, um, you know, when you hear, doctor, I want to die, 
what does that actually mean? Let's just sort of unpack that a bit. And there's a certain level of wisdom and maturity and medical knowledge and human knowledge that is required, I think, rather than just being left to junior staff. So I think that's a really positive thing and they feel safe by that as well. Yeah, I can imagine, again, getting back to that idea yeah. of the responsibility, Wayne. Can I just stay with you, Helen, and ask, if you had all the money in the world, what does a good death look like? And particularly in terms of, the, I guess, the existential concerns that you... Because I keep wondering why there isn't some magic happy drug. <laughs> look, I see joy in my hospice every day. And you might ask me how that is. So if I describe to you when a death goes well, it's when there's um, a degree of preparedness, there is a degree of comfort, or there is comfort, and most people do die comfortably. Um, and even um, a hospice is like a specialist palliative care unit, a, an intensive care unit for people with complex symptoms when they're dying. But when we get that level of comfort, when we get a, a family uniting around that person, or there's a sense of um, coming to terms with, with the life journey, if you like. And there's all sorts of variations on a theme with that. Not everybody's got the happy family around them. But if we can um, make a difference to somebody's end of life, I've got masses of stories of, you know, Mary Potter many years ago was to be the, um, the um, hospice for Yatla Jail. I personally went out to Yatla and saw how people were being treated out there at end of life. It was appalling. So, you know, we would get these people in prisoners who mostly, I think, had never been treated nicely in their entire lives. They could have a death that was dignified. Um, so I think when you, when you talk about what does it mean, it means that across the psychological, physical and emotional sphere, you've got support for those people that are important in, in the dying person's life. They've got as much choice as they can have and they're comfortable and they've come to terms with their life's work, whatever that may, may have been. And that's why legacy is really important. Um, I don't know if people, uh, we do all sorts of art therapy, complementary therapies. We've got a horse that comes to visit the patients. <laughs> they all love it. It's about that normalcy in, in life. So it's about not talking about your illness, but talking about you as a person. And that's what palliative care is. I don't really care what disease you've got. I really care about what, what's going on in your life and what's important to you, and let's make that happen. That's why we've got weddings that happen, you know, at the last minute, and that's why we've got people flying in and from interstate, and let me tell you, managing visitors in this COVID time in a hospice is probably the most difficult thing that I've ever been part of doing. So it's about wrapping life up and seeing as naturally as possible that life will come to an end and that you can have the people with you that you want. The last thing I'll say on that, we've got a gorgeous Aboriginal man, Stanley Jibung, who's a, I can say his name because he's gone public, but he, um, he's with, he comes in and out a lot for symptom management and support. But we got him back uh, to his country, which is in Queensland, and for a last visit, which was so important to him. Um, and now he's prepared to die. Um, and it's been able to create those opportunities for people. And then I think we often end well. Can I, can I answer that question yeah, of course, as well? Um, because everything you just said is so beautiful. And um, I've 
thought about this a lot, and I also just before told a small lie, and I would like to just um, unlie. <laughs> um, so in regards to a good death, I think um, it's important to look at a good death from two perspectives. First of all, the person who's doing the dying, and then secondly, the people that they're leaving behind. So I think for the person doing the dying, you know, you're the expert, and it sounds incredible, and if I have to go into hospice, I hope it's yours. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, pain-free and surrounded by loved ones is really and a good death. And, and a horse. horse. <laughs> yeah. um, another thing, um, my grandma had a goodbye party, and that was one of the most incredible events that I've ever been to. It was um, a Mad Hatter's tea party because she loved Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> and we all got dressed up, and it was the most ludicrous um, thing I think anyone there had attended, and it was so beautiful, and um, we got to read what would have been our eulogies to her, um, and at the end of the party, she got in the car and said, I, I had no idea that I meant so much to so many people. And I thought, how many elderly people are dying not realising how much they meant to those around them? So I'm an enormous advocate for goodbye parties, and I've already mm. started planning my own. I think they're wonderful. <laughs> um, in terms are you going to write your own eulogy? <laughs> I'm going to absolutely I'm going to go out with a bang. There's going to be confetti cannons. Um, in terms of what a good death looks like for those they're leaving behind, I think the opportunity to say the things you want to say and do the things you want to do is so important. Um, I think with death, there will always be grief, but grief with closure is so much less difficult to navigate than grief without closure. And I've experienced sudden deaths, and, and sudden deaths are so hard. Um, and I've got friends who've experienced long, prolonged traumatic deaths, and, you know, Kaiam story with his mother. There's so many unsaid things and unanswered questions with sudden deaths, and there's so much trauma with, with prolonged and painful deaths, and I didn't have either of those things with my grandma, and while my experience was tough, I was actually so incredibly lucky to have that. So, yeah. Thank you. That was beautiful. <laughs> and I'm with you on this party thing. I think I'm going to get planning. Absolutely. Uh, we are going to go to questions before too long. So um, get them straight in your head. Remember questions, not, not statements. We're going to have a microphone set up there. But kind of, first of all, I asked Susan about that sense of responsibility. Do you worry about the um, inequality of access both to gold standard palliative care and to voluntary assisted dialysis? How does it work in a remote Aboriginal community? Or how does it work based on your socio, you know, is, are there likely to be inequalities emerge along those lines? Yeah, there, there almost certainly will be. Uh, and that's unfortunately the case with healthcare and many other services uh, uh, in a state like South Australia where there are some very, very remote uh, communities. Um, WA has, has made provisions specifically for the use of telehealth in their legislation. Uh, in South Australia, we've... Uh, uh, stated, and I think it's section five of the act, that uh, voluntary assisted dying is not suicide. And that's because there is currently, uh, under federal law, a prohibition on using um, telecommunication services for, uh, for suicide. So that, that's uh, where Victoria has, uh, um, the Victorian law has not been able to be accessed over telehealth. Um, it's, it's unsure whether our provision of stating in the act that voluntary assisted dying is not suicide is going to be enough to give doctors comfort to use telehealth. And certainly in WA, where they specifically allow for telehealth, um, it, it's not certain whether that will, would survive 
you know, a prosecution under Commonwealth law. So th there will be those inequalities, which is, is difficult, but uh, it is one of the factors of having such a, a big state with so many remote communities. Alrighty, have we got a question? Hello. Yes. Hi, thank you for that. That's been um, really interesting and helpful to get uh, some of the detail around the legislation. I just wanted to clarify one thing. I think, Susan, you were talking about the amendments. Can I just clarify that it's only mm. in hospitals that an organisation can refuse um, to honour the person's wishes through volunteers? It's not in aged care homes. It, it, exactly. So the hospice and hospital, um, they're required to provide a transfer, facilitate that. Yeah. Uh, if you are in aged care, though, or, or in, a res in a retirement village, then you are uh, able to have access in your own home to a service. Okay. Yeah. And so for people who don't have a home, if they're in hospital and really don't have anywhere to go, they go to a, you mentioned a public institution, is that a public hospital or...? Yeah, that, that's the expectation. So. Uh, I think people should know that it is likely if they're in a Catholic hospital that they won't have access. Yeah. So um, now that that's clearer and there's an expectation that the hospitals will be clear with future patients, that they will have an awareness of what their options might be should they be at that stage of their lives and they might make different choices about where they go, but should they be there and decide that that is something they want to even have that first conversation about, then um, they would need to be transferred. And I think uh, the mechanics behind that are one of the things, that, one of the many things that the government now has to wrestle with in, in taking this piece of legislation and making it real. And if I can just add another one in there. I'm just wondering about the experience in Victoria and whether there have been institutions that have perhaps set up places where people can go. So um, in, in Victoria, they, they uh, tried to manage this through um, guidelines rather than in the legislation, um, which I think they're expecting more or less have the same effect, but obviously haven't entirely worked uh, in the case that I described. But, Carm, I don't know if the public health system... Yeah, in, in Victoria, they've said it's not part of their legislation, but a navigator service, so essentially a, yeah, a, a one-stop number that both patients and doctors can call to be directed to you know, where you can go, where someone might... You know, a doctor who's done the mandatory training that's needed to uh, be part of the VAD system can do so. Uh, my expectation is, we'll, as WA has, we'll see that sort of you know, one-stop phone number navigator service set up in South Australia as there has been in Victoria. Has anyone else got any questions? Because I've got plenty to go. Yep. <laughs> I think the benefit of um, having that navigator-type system is that the VAD process can be happening here and the ongoing care of the patient is still going on. And palliative care will never abandon a patient because they've requested voluntary assisted dying. Yeah. Can I say, I also thought it was sort of sweet that they actually decided that people in retirement villages are in their own home. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. I just wanted to find out if I'm clear in this, is it possible to do it at your own home, not in a retirement village? And also, is there, I come from the Netherlands and I've been part of this through families when we go back. Is there a chance in years to come that you would see that it might be for younger generations? 
the, which was the question about the younger generations? That they might choose or being able to help with their parents to make that choice? Uh, well, the individual who is dying needs to be able to express in, in a form that they want to do that. So uh, that may require the assistance of um, people to be able to interpret their yeah. indications, but the, someone can't speak on their behalf. The person who is dying has to be able to express that. And, and yes, of course, um, voluntary assisted dying is designed to be able to be um, accessed in your own home. If you want yeah, to and, and my, my Victoria most is, uh, is in your own home. And you administer it yourself, to yourself? You do administer, so the, there is a, a procedure whereby you can apply for a different permit to have a doctor administer it if, if you've lost some motor skills to, um, to, you know, to you know, literally take the substance. But uh, yeah, the, the vast, vast majority, you know, 80 or 90 per cent, um, you know, take, you know, use the substance, swallow the substance themselves. Um, it's apparently very, very bitter, and then have some champagne or something sweet afterwards. <laughs> but yeah, most people do it in their own homes and, and most with family members around them. Is there a reason we just say substance and not name what it is? Uh, or has it not been decided? No, you, I don't know what it is. I mean, what do you call it? A poison, a medicine? I mean, uh, medicine has usually got the implication that yeah, it's making you better. I guess, guess you're so, so used to talking about like Nambutal and specific kind no, of No, so, the, so it, 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 it's, it's talked about in Victoria, not, not widely, but it, it's a powder that is mixed up in, in, yeah, in yeah, at least I think it's 30 to 50 mils of water. Um, but no, they, they don't publicise exactly what the substance no, is. There are good reasons for that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I did wonder if there was a good reason for that. And, and there's different concoctions <laughs> being. Yeah. I, I just have a very quick other question. I've only recently heard that if you are a donor when you die, that can actually, on when you have died, a family member can make the choice to say, no, we don't want that. I'm not sure if that is true or not, but would that be the case for somebody like, in my family there was a person who was very close to us, had chosen that, and this was in the, 60, in the 80s. And a family member at that time changed and said, no, we don't let that happen, and pulled out. Do you mean and after voluntary assisted dying? Or? Yeah, that the person had chosen, she was on her way, a person that came in and realized that, had the power at that time, not anymore, to say, I don't want you to take this choice. Is that possible here? Well, not legally. Um, okay. that there isn't a legal process for someone who's related to step in and stop yeah. it. Um, what happens in a dying person's room is complex to legislate for. So yeah, it, I can imagine a scenario uh, where there might be um, a family member prevailing upon the person not to take the substance. Uh, but that's not, it's not something that's charted in our legislation. Okay, now that's changed. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask where you guys see the direction of voluntary assistance dying and dying in terms of legislation, like you've come this far and advocated, but what in terms of, say, for instance, like Sam's grandmother, um, the elderly being able to have that autonomy and choose when they want to go. Um, I just wondered whether you think the legislation is going to stagnate or you're going to, is it going to be a case of you're going to keep fighting and keep trying to move and progress uh, with the legislation? 
It's so, hard to talk about, isn't it? Because opponents say, see, it was always a slippery slope, but now we're going to be doing it yeah, everywhere. And, and we've been through this, haven't we, um, for a number of years of, tr of this legislation being attempted. This was the 17th one. So I don't sense any appetite in Parliament for anyone to go back there. And that's one of the reasons I think we felt such responsibility, because it was like we get one chance in a generation or two to do this. There may be some minor amendments in terms of residency. So say every state in Australia allows this, then you probably don't need to say, well, you have to be resident of this state for 12 months, because you'd have a harmonised, uh, you know, as long as you're Australian resident. Um, but, Kaim, you don't... No, look, I, I, I... My expectation is you won't see much change at all. It's a, it's a bit like Tory said, yeah, if it changed pretty quickly, it would just give strength to those who argue, see, it was always going to get you know, more uh, permissive. In, uh, in Washington and Oregon in the US, where you know, for some time there's been voluntary assisted dying laws, I think there's been one change in the two states. In, uh, in uh, the Netherlands and Belgium in Europe, uh, there have been not much change, uh, the biggest change being, I think, in Belgium where it was uh, uh, judge-made law from the courts and then codified in legislation. The, the, the experience is once you have a voluntary assisted dying scheme, it, it, it doesn't change much. And, and, and as Susan said, that, uh, that was a big incentive to, to get it as close to um, uh, what you want at the start. I would just say, though, on the slippery slope argument, uh, because, of course, that came up a little bit in our debate. And uh, it, it sort of presupposes that um, once you cross the bridge, then anything will go. And I think that comes from a perspective of this kind of binary, it's right or it's wrong. And once you're doing something that some people regard as wrong, then anything might happen. And, and I don't mean to trivialise this at all. Um, but a, a somewhat clumsy analogy would be the same-sex marriage debate. Where Which led to polygamy and bestiality, it, it, if you recall. It's a, this sort of argument that if you, <laughs> let, if you right. let two girls get married, then God knows what's going to happen. You know, and, and so there is that. I think because when people hold it as a very um, firm moral position, they can't understand what it might like to be in a different moral position and therefore it's uncharted waters for them. Uh, that's not my view and I think most people's view. So should there be changes in the future, they will be made with as much difficulty and care and concern as this lot were, and presumably on the basis of evidence. Uh, but I don't anticipate that happening for a really long time in Australia. We haven't got all states on one page yet. So uh, I do think we're a generation or two from any tinkering. But as a, as a rational legislator, um, I have to be always prepared that someone will come up with a piece of legislation that I then have to have an opinion on, but I, I just don't see it happening. With that moral position, with the people who are always going to think it's going to be wrong, were there many people who hold that position without religion as the reason? Uh, I, not everyone who voted against in the lower house did so from a religious perspective. So I'm not quite sure why they voted against. Um, and I wouldn't mind having a conversation now that some time has elapsed, just to understand. But it's clearly um, a, a very big overlap between the two, um, but it doesn't seem to be entirely a correlation. And my grandma was so ahead of her time. <laughs> what was that? Um, my grandma was so ahead of her time. I don't think there's going to be any... Um, 
I think that there's a sense of once the state has done this much, it's been mm. so hard to get this legislation passed in each state. So much campaigning, people giving up hours and weeks and years of their lives to, to um, get this passed, and it's so important that it has, but to then come in and, and you know, these guys are tired. <laughs> the politicians have <laughs> other things on their plate. You know, yeah. I'm sure for many people, including myself, like, this is not the hill I thought I'd be dying on, you know? Yeah. So, um... So yeah. do we let the politicians have a little break and then they have to worry about palliative care instead? I think, yeah, <laughs> perhaps. And I think maybe the, the next generation, like I think as my generation comes through and starts to see the effect of aged care on their parents um, and, you know, people are living longer, but that doesn't mean that the end of their lives are, are magically, you know, wonderful. It's, it's still really tough watching someone suffer to the end from old age. So you know, maybe in the next generation something will will have become available for the elderly, but it feels really far away. Yeah. Does it feel closer that maybe there will be legislation in every state and maybe even the territories? Do you think there's an inevitability to that? Uh, I, maybe that's I one for the so. police. Yeah, I, yeah, that's one for these guys. On my, well, we're on only really state-wise. Queensland's about to debate a very similar piece of legislation. Uh, so New South Wales is the kind of silent one, um, which is ironic for poor Andrew Denton, whose home state it is, yeah. and he's been such a, a terrific advocate for this issue. Uh, and then there is that question of the interaction between the, uh, the territories and Canberra. Mm. So Northern Territory blazed the trail here, but then had it taken away. Khan, do you have any sense of Canberra's changing views? Or Yes, within three and a half years, every state and territory will have it. Wow, no, that's <laughs> And if they do, I'll remind you all I said that, and if they don't, everyone will forget my bold prediction. Brilliantly executed, Kyle. <laughs> well you're done. Welcome. I am interested in that Canberra question, though, because obviously at Canberra Road over the, the territories, and it feels like the Federation is a very different beast these days, and I don't know which way that would play out. Yeah, More culture wars, maybe? There, there, there are... I know there are moves to restore that right of the, the territories to legislate in relation to voluntary assisted dying, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that... If, I'd be very surprised if they don't get that right again in the next few years. Yeah, and, mm. you know, the court of public opinion has shifted mm -hmm. significantly. And, and, it, and there, that equity issue we talked about, you know, mm. within South Australia for people in remote communities, I think comes into play as well in Australia, if, if, you know, if Queensland passed laws later this year, New South Wales very soon afterwards, it would be completely uh, inequitable for you know, living in Canberra or Alice Springs not to have, have something available that's available everywhere else in Australia. And you know, a lot of people in, in the Northern Territory come to Adelaide for medical treatment to, to deny you know, something that everywhere else you get, I, I, I think, would weigh heavily upon uh, politicians in Canberra. Indeed. Well, look, that's, that's all we've got time for. I did have one more question here, which was, who are the real diehards? But basically, that was just an excuse to make a terrible pun. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, is a really terrible pun. <laughs> it was pun bad. Joke. I'm so sorry. Um, look, before you go, make sure you've got everything with you. Uh, and if anyone was at all distressed by the conversation we had today, call Lifeline on 131114. Other than that, we hope you enjoyed, I guess, what can be a grim and complicated topic and if we can just give one great big final thank you to all our wonderful panelists. <laughs>